Jazz trumpeter and composer and band leader Wynton Marsalis came together with African-born musician and composer Jakob Adi to create a long-form suite titled Congo Square as a tribute to and evocation of the ring shouts and drumming and dancing created by the enslaved people of New Orleans who were permitted to make music together one day a week on Sundays. No one alive today has heard those musical sounds, but Wynton Marsalis and Jacob Adi thought they could capture its spirit, channel it in a way, in this work, Congo Square, the name taken from the site of those gatherings in New Orleans. Matt Sakakini of the music faculty at Tulane is fascinated by the musical tapestry of New Orleans. New Orleans then unfolding and brewing to the present day. The thread he follows, the theme of the 100-part-plus fugue he focuses on, concerns black brass bands. And he tells us in his study, New Orleans Music as a Circulatory System, that the level of mobility and interaction permitted in New Orleans of the second half of the 19th century is evidenced by the extraordinary musical intermixture in the city during the antebellum period. Lafcadio Hearn wrote about the Congo Square dances while residing in New Orleans from 1878 to 1888, but he also composed ethnographic vignettes of Italian organ grinders in the French Quarter, the musical cries of black and white fruit peddlers, and the work songs of carpenters sung in French Creole. Henry Kamen's thorough study, Music in New Orleans, The Formative Years, includes descriptions of opera houses with seating for whites, free people of color, and slaves, concerts by the Negro Philharmonic Society, and nightly ballroom dances that turned the city into, quote, one vast waltzing and gallopading hall. In the decades following emancipation, 40,000 freed slaves arrived in New Orleans from rural plantations, and these African-Americans wove themselves into a complex social order that included former urban slaves, free people of color, mixed-race Creoles, and diverse others. It was during this period that African-American music flourished with the advent of ragtime, blues, and jazz. And in New Orleans, the brass band became entangled with these and other musical genres as it developed into a signature style of local black music. Dr. Sakakini continues, New Orleans' black population reached a critical mass by the start of the 20th century as Jim Crow laws attempted to classify former plantation slaves, urban slaves, free people of color, mixed-race Creoles, and others as either black or white. 
white musicians were performing alongside black musicians and or playing music with shared characteristics. Together, these diverse individuals connected by way of music, forming what Bruce Rayburn has called an incipient jazz community. The circulation of instruments, repertoire, and performance practices in this community caused a musical efflorescence akin to a chemical reaction brought about by the synthesis of multiple elements. Indoors, this music was played by varying combinations of cornets, clarinets, trombones, violin, bass, piano, banjo, guitar, and drums, and would eventually become known as jazz. Outdoors, marching bands began performing a mobile version of this music that transformed the funeral procession into what we now recognize as a jazz funeral. Jazz would become an international phenomenon, a process bookended by the overnight success of the original Dixieland jazz band's livery stable blues in 1917, and the Congressional Declaration of Jazz as a rare and valuable National American treasure in 1987. Black New Orleans have paraded to brass band music at least since the late 19th century, and these processions derive in some unquantifiable measure from the dances at Congo Square. of Dr. Matt Sakakini of Tulane. We've just heard about the roots of what we know as jazz that go back to that chemical reaction of different musics in the city of New Orleans. And as Doug Smith's Dixieland All-Stars play the traditional music here... They, too, are carrying on a long-standing tradition. The Folk Arts Initiative at the Everhart Museum in Scranton is all about passing on traditions and celebrating living artists who are doing just that, passing on traditions. Kimberly Crafton is interim coordinator of the project, and she's been introducing us to some of the treasures, as she proudly calls them, from the region through the continuing Second Sunday series. This Sunday, we'll meet jazz bassist Doug Smith, and Kimberly Crafton fills us in and introduces us to Doug Smith as we learn more about the Folk Arts Initiative. We are blessed beyond, as many people know, with folk and traditional artists in our area. And what's so wonderful about so many of them is that while they have deep folk traditions, they also have this indelible spirit that carries them into contemporary art and, and so many excursions into cross genres and, and everything. So we've, we get to experience them in many ways. The Everhart Museum is a partner with the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts for their folk and traditional arts initiative. And what that means is that we have this incredible opportunity to present to the public the people in our region who have been practicing for many, many years. I always have to be a little careful when saying that because the older I get, the older all of us get many, many years. <laughs> Doesn't always sound great, but, but this is literally decades of depth 
into their particular form of art. And we get to help preserve the art forms of these artists. We get to help set them up in apprenticeship programs, and we get to help with public programming so that people in a region have more access to seeing these kinds of folk and traditional arts. So it's a great honor, and we cover six counties. We cover in the Endless Mountains, Susquehanna and Wyoming County, and of course in the Valley Cities, we cover Lackawanna and Luzerne Counties, and in the Pocono Mountains, Wayne and Pike Counties. So it's a big footprint, and so many different kinds of artists living in those areas, practicing their traditional arts, their folk arts, and it's our pleasure every second Sunday of the month to have these conversations, to get a little more in-depth in learning who they are. So starting in March of this year and going up through December, each second Sunday, we will be presenting a different artist to learn about their culture, their background, of their family, what keeps them impassioned about all of these different ways that their creativity has come through the traditions that they were handed down, sometimes from family, sometimes from mentors, and certainly from other folk and traditional artists before them. And you've had a wonderful array. You've had a piper. You've had a classical Indian dancer. You've had a sculptor and a drummer and more music this time. Introduce us to Doug Smith. Oh, my goodness. Doug Smith has been a fixture in the music scene from the Pocono region through the Valley Cities and even into the Endless Mountains and beyond. Doug has been a musician of many different genres. He's a bassist. He is a band leader of several different bands. And most importantly, he is an organizer and a documenter of different traditions. And one of the traditions that he really took up was that of Dixieland jazz. And that is where we really connect with him with the Folk and Traditional Arts Program. And part of what it is is his extensive experience in it. And the other part is the documentation work that he's done for artists that came before him. And Doug, we know from past conversations with you that you have worked over the years, played over the years with so many key musicians from our area. Not only do you know the tradition at large in the world of jazz, but you know our region and the musicians who have been the torch bearers of Dixieland in our region. So what is it about Dixieland and what has intrigued you and, and why do you care so much? Well, when Kim contacted me about this program, e- even though you and I have talked quite often about different things, it, it really made me think about the hundreds it's hard to even figure out, but maybe not thousands, but at least over a thousand people I've probably worked with musician-wise and have been fortunate since playing from around 1962, 1963 up until now. And, you know, it, it made me realize a little more vividly how lucky I was to learn my craft, and in this case, early Dixieland and swing music and jazz, directly from some of the folks who were playing it since, you know, when it was really like the, the 30s, 20s, and 30s around in there. So we, we got the good fortune of actually working with uh, what I really feel are living legends. I mean, they're the folks that, and musicians that have played this music since its inception. So 
I just came in on the, the end of some of their lives, unfortunately. But to really share that, that musical knowledge and, and share their souls and their traditions was, uh, I, I began to realize how important that was. And then, you know, between some of our conversations and what Kim and I were talking about in this program, it, it really made me realize that, that it was a very important folk art to preserve. And Doug, before we get into talking about some of those wonderful personalities and one-of-a-kind players you've worked with, talk to us a little bit about that early jazz, about Dixieland and the roots of that music. Yeah, I mean, I'm by far not one of the the most uh, expert historians of it, but through doing programs in our schools, through residencies, through PCA and so forth, and I've, I've learned quite a bit. And one of the things that fascinates me about the history of, of that music, it's really, they say jazz is America's original art form. There may be others, but that's one of the ways that it's described. And the fact that it came about from so many different ethnicities, nationalities, religions, races coming into this country, and the synergy and the energy that they created in coming together and, and creating this music is such a testament to the strength of the different cultures coming together and, and how strong that is. I mean, there's so much talk lately about division and, and prejudice and so forth, but really, back you know, the, the turn of the century, early 1900s and everything, I mean, that was a perfect example of, of not having any problem between, you know, between all different people. And the fact that this music came from that is, is just a testament to it. I mean, literally, a place called Congo Park in New Orleans was a place where musicians of, of the people we just spoke about would actually gather on Sunday afternoons. And they didn't all know each other's music. I mean, you know, there was uh, religious music coming from, from uh, Europe. There were, there were great, incredible rhythms coming from Africa, unbelievable music from South America and Cuba, and, and even possibly some Native American influence. But they all kind of got mixed together in a big pot. And, you know, what, what came out about that was early Americana music and early... Dixieland and, and that type of music. I mean, others also followed, but that's something that we, sh our country should be proud of and we should all be proud of. The, you know, it's a real testament to the positiveness of, of uh, diversity. Now, Kim reminded us that you play a mean bass. Was the tuba something that was a forerunner in these bands to the bass or did they play together? How did that come about? Well, sure, you're exactly right. I mean, there were the earlier, uh, of course, they were all different kind of horn players and brass players and probably not so many string basses around at that point, maybe some more classical folks, you know, the head string basses, cellos. But, yes, the, the tuba definitely held down the, the low end of the, of, the, of the rhythm section at that point. And, you know, some of the bands did have tubas. Some of them eventually had basses. Of course, they were, I mean, it was just, Anything you could imagine, you know, because who, whoever happened to be there to play, they would they would all play together. So I'm sure there were a few tubas, a few basses, and maybe a bunch of banjos, and who knows what kind of percussion. Yeah, and and now some of the resurgence of the, of of the brass band music from New Orleans uh, really does highlight the some great tuba playing. 
And I suppose we could say, could we not, Kim and Doug, that maybe the tradition of the New Orleans funeral, going in a grim way to the cemetery and playing in a celebratory way on the way back, that's kind of a folk ritual, isn't it? Well, you know, again, there are so many aspects of every different folk art that are specific to the place. And that is a very specific application of that kind of music to the place of specifically New Orleans and, and other culture points as well. But that's what's so wonderful about folk arts is you can have a broad overreaching tradition and then very specific elements of it can be brought out in various places throughout the country. Yeah, yeah, that was a great and is a great tradition still in, in you know, many southern states. As as you said, Erica, performing with a with kind of a brass band or a, a band that was mobile that could walk around some hymns and so forth for the departed and then returning from the funeral with a little more upbeat version of some of the hymns and, and celebrating the loved ones passing on to a better place, hopefully. Doug actually began on the trumpet rather than on the bass. Yeah, it was just sort of a, just something that happened. I All through high school, I was blessed to have a wonderful jazz trombonist named Jack Stripcheski as our music teacher, even though we grew up in a little town of Newfoundland, and, and I was very lucky that he was there. And and I did have an ingrained love of music through my my mother and my uncle Don, who played trumpet, and and uh, you know we had some other really close friends who were who were kind of uh, into jazz. And so I mean I played I played trumpet all through middle school. Well, there was no different middle and high and all being we just had one school. But I played through middle school and then high school, and and I really enjoyed it. I mean I. I don't know if I had quite the personality of a real strong, high, screeching lead trumpet player, but I, I loved blending in with the rest of the horns and uh, playing the great marches. And then eventually they put together, my music teacher put together a little jazz ensemble, and I still played trumpet in that for a little bit. And then in, I can't remember exactly, but in, the, in working with that little jazz ensemble, there was a bass that sort of appeared at our school. I'm not sure quite where it came from. And I was fooling around with it. And I, I always kind of liked the low-pitched instruments. I liked the baritone sax and uh, bass and, and so forth, trombone, bass trombone. And so my music teacher said, well, you know, why don't you give it a try? We don't have a bass in the band. So I at least knew my basic, not to make a pun, music, my rudimentary music. And um, it wasn't too hard to switch to switch over and uh, I really kind of fell in love with it, and we needed the bass in the band. And uh, so that's how my my excursion on the bass began. And remind people that it is a fundament. I mean, if we don't have a bass, you're the harmonic foundation, aren't you, when you're playing? Yeah, we. I mean, of course, the bass players always say that, you know, that the whole, the whole band would just completely disintegrate without the bass. But <laughs> they would still survive. But, yeah, you're right. I mean... It's, you know, it's like an analogy of building a house. You have to have a very strong foundation and a, and a strong rhythm section with the drums and the guitar and or piano or banjo. And so you do have a pretty strong responsibility of keeping everything locked in and, and then beyond that, making it what you call making it groove or swing, make it, making it feel really good and not just be playing the notes. Of course, you had a good grounding in, speaking of foundation, you had a good foundation in school in Newfoundland. But also, there is that way of learning jazz 
by just listening, by sitting side by side or listening to the LPs or 78s or whatever it is, and just by ear, the oral tradition. Talk to us about you and the oral tradition. Well, that's really, I mean, beyond my basic musical knowledge, I I really didn't go to a college for music. I went to Penn State for electrical engineering, believe it or not, and didn't quite finish. It was a little more difficult than my mathematical abilities were, and I wound up actually performing a lot at Penn State. I was performing more than I probably should have been as far as studying. But you're you're right. So my, my knowledge was really down there in the trenches, and I was just, once again, extremely fortunate to grow up in a period when there was just a plethora of unbelievably talented and well-known jazz musicians in the Poconos, and which is where Newfoundland is. I mean, I occasionally would get to sit in, you know, with somebody like Al Cohen or Zoot Sims or folks like that, but often in some of the show bands, there was a band at, at Tamman Resort that had, like, I mean, most of the really well-known jazz musicians were there. I didn't even know them all at that point. I was just a kid. So the the fact that you you just learn that, it's like sink or swim. You know, like, you it definitely pulls you up. I mean, I I was not a good bass player when I started, but you, you found out pretty quickly you better, you know, better get with the program or you're not going to be there. So, but I, I was very lucky. And, you know, we mentioned a few people uh, when I was talking with Kim on the video that we did, and just to mention a few folks, uh, of course, Erica knows Bobby Baird very well, and he, thank God, is still alive and going strong in his 90s playing trumpet, and we're going to be doing a few things at Neog Park in the next few months if anybody wants to try to catch some of that. And there was a, some folks that are not with us anymore on trumpet, Louis Millard and Bobby Price, and another person I mentioned was Howie Collins, who was a wonderful, talented guitar player that's passed away, and Frank Casti on clarinet. Uh, Joey I was a fine trombonist. Alex Watkins, also a great trombonist, as well as Butch Ardito on trombone. Uh, and then, of course, I, I worked with Ferdy Bistoki for many years, and I learned from him not not just music and learning all the old songs, the old standards, but I learned kind of how to run a band, which is not something that you can just study and learn. That's something, you know, it's like dealing with all kinds of personalities. And as you know, in music, there's quite varied. <laughs> And uh, so I, I also learned a lot from, you know, the band leaders that I worked with. And one of the things that you are committed to and have been committed to all along is the performance of music live, the audience being right there, except for COVID, right there with the performers, that there really isn't anything like it. And as wonderful as CDs are and, and wonderful as sound systems are, you're all about live music. Yeah, you're right. And, 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 you know, there is a magic that happens. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but we've done a few video things here and there. And I'm glad that we were able to do them. But there's a real connection, you know, between, first of all, between musicians when you're playing together on the stage live. That you, you really do connect each other's souls in a, in a very intimate way. There's probably no other way I can describe it, but it's a direct connection of, of emotions and support and uh, give and take you know you're you might do a solo you might just try to back somebody up make them sound good and so forth and then the same thing happens with the audience I mean you really sense the audience not just applause but you really can feel you know the audience's appreciation or possibly once in a while 
not appreciation, but it, it really moves you along. And, and that connection of souls happens with, uh, you know, happens with the audience, too. So, yeah, I've always, and we've, we've done a lot to try to promote live music through the Musicians' Union and, and various grants and things that we get to do, you know, to do music. So that's been something that's been very rewarding, you know, for me also. And Kim, you were talking about the importance in this effort with the Everhart and the folk arts about passing the tradition on. So, Doug, talk about your work with the schools and so forth and how important that is. Yeah, as I said, we do, we were doing, of course, before the uh, the virus struck, residencies in the schools through, through the Pennsylvania Council of the Arts. And they were quite diverse. I mean, it would be all different kinds of things. But one of the most important things is when when we had some early training with doing residencies in the schools, I never really wanted to be like a, a quote, teacher, teacher, but I enjoyed helping people, helping younger people, helping other musicians learn and so forth casually, you know, informally. And actually, a long time ago, uh, Catherine Cullen, who was in charge of that program and still works with them as a consultant, she came to hear us play quite often, and, you know, I would speak on the mic and play and so forth, and she said, you'd be really good for this program, and I I honestly didn't want to do it. I said, no, I'm not really, I don't want to be a teacher, I just want to perform, and I don't, you know, mind. So she kind of pushed it and pursued it, and I'm glad she did, because it, it did get me into that program, and <clears throat> one of the best, most important parts of it is you're working literally right in the middle of a classroom, even if I just bring my bass into a classroom, just can just imagine like young kids, elementary kids are, you know, and they're just amazed, you know, they're just, it's just like, <laughs> it just blows them away to be right there with the bass. And many of them have never even seen it. We had quite a bit of training in the beginning about we're doing residencies. And I'll, I'll never forget the gentleman that ran the mom puppet theater in, in uh, Philadelphia said to, said to us, we were having a training in Harrisburg, I think. And he said, he said, I know some of you are nervous and, you know, but he said, don't worry. He said, there's no such thing as a bad residency. And we're like, well, what, you know, like, that, how could that be? And he said, you, you, you don't realize it, but just the fact that these professional artists of all genres, not just music, uh, but, you know, visual art and poetry and, and so forth, just the fact that the children meet someone who's making their living as a, as a full-time artist that's a huge impact on, that has a huge impact on them. And so, of course, he was simplifying it, and, you know, you do have to do your best to make everything work right. But but that's true. If you put yourself in those young children's place, and you can imagine artists coming in that are doing that as a, as a living, it's, it has a really strong impact on them. And I know for a fact that there's been a number of children that really actually took up the base because we did some residencies and so forth. So, and it's been very rewarding in that way, too. I think you really touched on it uh, when you were talking a little bit ago about touching souls. That was something that, that happens inside of music, and it certainly happens as you are trying to present your art, your passion, and ignite the soul of someone else. And uh, what a beautiful place to do it in, in a school situation. Right, and I, and I really... As Erica mentioned earlier, I, I was always kind of interested in documenting things. I mean, whenever we would play, I would occasionally have folks videotape them or record them. And just, you know, for posterity mostly, and the fact that I enjoyed the music and wanted to have recordings of it. But then as time went on, what I think makes this folk 
program so extra important is documenting and and supporting the folk artists in in this area because you know looking back in my conversations with Kim there were so many of these great musicians that are no longer with us in fact if I can find it I'm sure I have it I have to round it up I have a video from Skytop Lodge where we first did our Dixieland music they they asked for a Dixieland band in the, oh, it was a long time ago 30 years ago so the band I put together, the little, the little band I put together, unfortunately, I'm the only one that's still living. And Kim, is that the kind of thing that this program is designed to do, to get copies like that and keep those in archives somewhere so we don't lose the opportunity to hear some of his colleagues playing there at Skytop 30 years ago who are no longer with us? I think that's a dream. That's a, that's a wonderful dream to be able to do that. You know, initially, since we're in such an early phase of it, we're still at the point of trying to help identify and get the word out that we are in existence. And then a dream of moving into the future would be to really try to find a way to leverage the resources to help build those kinds of things as an archive. And But what we can do, you know, what we're doing in the meantime is trying to get people in touch with uh, all resources on the website that you can look at videos of this and videos of the performances and find a way to reach out to that artist directly um, and then, you know, eventually provide the support to help them with further documentation and preservation, absolutely. And Doug, you mentioned Skytop and Tamaman. And another thing, Kim, you said so well and you talked so well about the specificity of the folk arts to a place I would think that the history that you witnessed and were part of in the Poconos, that's a kind of cultural phenomenon that may not exist in the same form as it did. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it, it, our conversations with Kim made me think even back a little farther in, in my life. And in, in the little town of Newfoundland, of course, square dancing was a big thing when I was really young. And there were some really talented, I don't even know how to classify what type of music you would say. I mean, it's sort of folk, country, Americana. I mean, they would play for the square dances, but they'd also play, you know, some of their own music. And, and I used to play sometimes with some of those folks. And you're, you're right. I mean, it's really a unique indigenous kind of a music, you know, to certain areas. Uh, even before we did all the resort work. Uh, and, and we're lucky to play with a lot of the jazz guys who were losing work in New York City and would come out to the Poconos to play. So that was, I mean, that was a great that was a great experience for me too when I was really young. You know, just playing with the local people that, that would do that kind of music. I mean, I and then moving on to the resorts, as you mentioned a little bit, we got to play with a lot of well-known acts at the time. We would back them up, like Billy Eckstein and Bobby Rydell and. We played Cab Calloway a number of times and his daughter, and, and to play with him, I mean, that, that right there is a transfer of, of, of knowledge and, and, and emotion that was just incredible, you know, to be able to, to, be able to work with some of those folks. And, and, you know, not even in the jazz sense, like I played with a few really good polka bands when I was younger also, one gentleman named Ray Barno, who I believe is still performing, and, and I would learn things. Like, he he would say to me, because I was playing usually my electric bass with the polka band, and I thought I was doing okay. I'm reading the music and everything, and he and he came over one night and said, he said, Doug, he said, uh, no, you're, you're playing the music okay, but he said, think more like you're playing like a tuba. He said, 
play the play the notes a little bit longer and a little bit fuller. And uh, you know, there's something to be learned with every genre of music. And and I'll I'll never forget that because if you think about you know some of the earlier polka bands, I mean, as you said, the, the tuba was a very important part you know a long time ago. So there were things like that, and then learning thousands of songs because we rarely would read any music when we were doing Dixieland or even playing just regular jobs in the 60s, 70s. You, you had to learn. You just learn all the old standards, and you would learn the chord changes from the guys you worked with, and if you screwed up, they'd say, no, no, that's a C-sharp there, or that's, you know, an E-flat minor. They, they would correct you, and you'd hopefully remember it. So it, it's just uh, an unbelievable uh, amount of knowledge that I was able to absorb through, you know, luckily through the people that I could work with back then. This kind of recounting of such things as the oral tradition and learning from the folks who who've paid their dues and are willing to work with you to bring you along and so on and so forth. Kim, this must be a thrill for you to see that this is just what the program is supposed to do. Well, if you could see the grin on my face from the beginning of this conversation on, as you're talking about all of these different people, and by the time you guys are talking about Cab Calloway, my smile was rivaling his, if that's even possible. But the elasticity of mind that it takes to step into all of these different art forms and, and how wonderful to be asked to play a bass like a tuba. I mean, that just that thrilled me beyond because that is what it is. If you can master the simple things, and, and we've talked to many of the folk artists about, it is about mastery of the basics. You have to be consumed by your capacity to do a basic thing well, and then you repeat doing that well under a variety of circumstances. And that, that seems to me a lot of what you're talking about, Doug. And then in the circumstances that you are stepping into, you grow larger. As an artist, you grow larger as part of the human experience because of all of the people that are now becoming not only your friends, but especially your teachers. So yes, Erica, absolutely. This is this is exactly where we're excited to, to be able to bring these conversations forward. And tell us then how we can hear Doug and you in the conversation on the second Sunday. Certainly. So to find the uh, Doug's program that we will be premiering on the second Sunday in June, which is uh, this coming Sunday, you will find it at the Everhart Museum YouTube channel. So there are a few ways you can do that. You can just go directly to YouTube and search for the Everhart Museum, and you'll find our channel there and the link to the upcoming premiere video. Or you can go directly to the Everhart Museum's website, which is Everhart, E-V-E-R-H-A-R-T hyphen museum.org and click on events and you'll see the second Sunday's series there, the second Sunday's folk series. And click there and there will be a direct link to that premiere video featuring Doug Smith as well. Kimberly Crafton, Interim Coordinator of the Folk and Traditional Arts Partnership with the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts at the Everhart Museum in Scranton, and rostered artist Doug Smith, jazz bassist, band leader, musical mentor, and arts promoter 
Second Sunday series this Sunday, June 13th at 2 o'clock, will feature Doug Smith, a profile as one of the artists involved in this folk and traditional arts partnership with the PCA and the Everhart Museum. You can find it on the Everhart Museum YouTube channel. And as Kimberly just explained, you can go to YouTube directly and work through that way or go to the Everhart Museum website and click on events. Everhart-museum.org, everhart-museum.org, the second Sunday series featuring Doug Smith this Sunday, June 13th at 2. The <laughs> 